God, we thank you that you are a speaking God. You have not hidden yourself. You have revealed yourself in your word. And you've revealed yourself in your creation. We thank you that we can know you through Jesus Christ. We thank you for what we remember this time of year and what we celebrate, that, uh, that the word, the Son of God, took on flesh and that you have revealed yourself fully and truly through him uh, so that we can be restored to you. We thank you for this inexpressible gift, and we pray that as we think about your word this morning, that you would give us uh, wisdom from your spirit, wisdom from above, and we pray that um, you would give us harmony uh, as we think through these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are coming towards the end of this study, and we have come a long way. Uh, we began back in September. Actually, we began in 2020, but that's another story. Uh, we began this last September by considering what the Bible has to say for itself, that it presents itself as the very Word of God, as God-breathed, truthful, trustworthy. We've seen the Bible's kind of autobiography, its own story about itself, about how it was written and received. Then we looked at how the church copied and translated God's word through the ages, often met with resistance, but treasured and followed by God's people, even at great personal cost. We've walked through the story of the Bible in English and learned about John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, John Rogers, the bishops of the Anglican church, and the Puritans trying to reform that same church, each producing their own versions of the Bible and then coming together to revise those versions and produce the King James Bible. We've talked about the thousands of biblical manuscripts that we have today and how modern translations revise and update the versions that came before to more precisely present to us what was originally written in our own language. Now what? Today, we have well over 50 translations of the Bible in English and counting. Another one just came out this year. What do we do with them all? That is the question that we're going to think about today, and I want to let you know up front that one of the ways we're going to apply this specifically is to our own situation as a church, this season that we're in as we're thinking about the translation that we use in our public gatherings, in our services, that we'll talk about today in our family meeting. So that's the specific kind of applicational area that we're going to be thinking of. But there will be lessons for us in our personal use of scripture as well. So, the first thing that we're going to think about is the translation methods and styles. We talked last week about how there's two basic principles in Bible translation. There's, there's form and there's meaning. The, the principle of form aims to replicate the form of the Hebrew and Greek and only move to meaning when translating the words doesn't make sense. The, the principle of meaning puts the primary emphasis on the meaning of each of the original words or phrases in its original context. And remember that every translation has to do both things. Every translation has to give some attention to form and to meaning. And remember that there is no translation that is purely form or purely meaning. So, you know, I think it's appropriate for us to guard against being too lofty in these principles. If you read the preface for the NASB or the ESV or the NIV, any of the prefaces, some of them will uh, kind of laud their literalness uh, or their readability, and I just don't think that's necessary. Um, we can appreciate those things, um, but don't have to conclude that one style is superior to the other, because all of them have to do a bit of both things, and depending on the particular verse that you're in, they will lean one direction or another. 
uh, as you can see on the screen, this is a, this is a uh, very simplified uh, version of just kind of considering how translation types work. I've only got about, I've only got, I'll explain in a minute, five translations and then two other things up there. Uh, just to kind of illustrate the principle and kind of the spectrum of Bible translations. Um, I've only given a, a few examples up here of things that I think you've heard of or maybe are using. There's lots more. If you Google charts like this, um, I put this particular one together, but if you Google charts like this, you can find a lot more detail if you're using something else or have a question about something, a different version. So let's just talk through this chart a little bit. So on the yeah, it's on the left side of the screen. You, have, you see the principle of form. The principles are on the bottom of form and meaning. And on the left side of the spectrum, we have more form-based translation. And on the right side, we have more meaning-based translation. On the far left, on the top, I have an interlinear in brackets. Uh, because this is as literal or as form-based as you can get. And actually, it's, I would not refer to interlinears as a translation. Interlinears are not readable in English because of the word order of Hebrew and Greek, uh, because there are words in Hebrew and Greek that we don't need grammatically in English, and because there are words in English that we do need grammatically that aren't in the Hebrew and Greek. Uh, that's why you have, uh, in the King James or in the, some versions of the NASB, you have words in italics because we have to supply words in English to make sense of the Hebrew and Greek. On the far right side of that spectrum, you have the message in brackets, and I've done this because the message isn't really a translation either. Um, instead, it's a paraphrase, a, a restatement in the words of the author Eugene Peterson. And in principle, in principle, I don't think that paraphrases, rightly understood, are a bad thing, uh, but I do think it's important to distinguish between a translation and a paraphrase because paraphrases, like the message, are highly interpretive. And I think, it's, I think it's better to think of them as a commentary. Uh, and as such, paraphrases are only going to be as good as the author. Uh, and specifically, I want you to know that I have some concerns about specific passages in the message that I think are bad interpretations of certain texts. So those are kind of things on the extreme that I would say are, are, are not quite translations. But then in between these polls, we have some popular translations. Again, there's lots of them. I have not even come close to giving you all of them. The NASB on the left is generally more formal. The NIV on the right is more meaning-based. The ESV, the King James, and the New King James tend to be more formal, but are also more meaning-based than the NASB. Nevertheless, in any given passage, uh, you'll find exceptions to these general trends. Uh, there are times when the ESV, the King James, and the New King James uh, will uh, lean into meaning, and so will the NASB, and vice versa. So. Um, we can talk more about this chart in a minute if you'd like. I'm going to keep going just for the sake of time, and then I'll pause for questions or comments. I want to think about this question next. Which translation is best? Which translation is best? One of the favorite, my favorite teachers that I've ever had was a man named Colin Smith uh, at Baptist Bible College, which is where I went to college, uh, up in Clark Summit. Uh, he was my Hebrew and theology professor, and he taught me a lot about the Bible. Uh, of course, he taught me uh, how to work with biblical Hebrew. Um, and he used to say that the best translation is two. The best translation is two. And what he meant by that was that multiple translations can help you gain insights into the biblical text that you might not otherwise see. And he wasn't alone in this principle or practice. So, Miles Coverdale, who 
produced his own early English version of the Bible uh, before the King James in the 1500s, Miles Coverdale. Uh, at this point, remember, this was kind of the first explosion of Bible translations in English, so Coverdale knew about several other translations. He said, Sure I am that there cometh more knowledge and understanding of the scriptures by their sundry translations than by all the glosses of our sophistical doctors. So he's saying it, it's, it's helpful. We gain understanding by having multiple translations of the Bible. Amy Carmichael, who is a missionary to India, she used and quoted in her writings from the King James, from the Revised Version, from the Prayer Book Version of the Great Bible. That's an Anglican thing. Uh, she quoted from the Septuagint, from the American Standard Version, and a few others. Carmichael explained, in case any are puzzled by the different translations from which I draw strength and help and delight, it is like this. In studying any object with the microscope, we use different lenses and turn the mirror in various ways. Such change brings out some new wonder and beauty. So it is for those who are not Greek or Hebrew scholars and who use the work of scholars to open the meaning of the inexhaustible word. The Bible is richer than any single version can fully show. C.S. Lewis, who um, not only wrote the popular works that you know of, but was also uh, trained in the English language in the classics. That was kind of his, his profession as, as a scholar and as a professor at Oxford. He said, as for translation, even if one doesn't know Greek, and I know no Hebrew myself, we have now so many different translations that by using and comparing them all, one can usually see what is happening. And we'll illustrate this in, in just a moment. R.V. Clearwaters, who uh, was the founder of Central Baptist Theological Seminary and one-time president of the Fundamental Baptist Fellowship. In 1974, and I'm giving you that date because uh, of just giving you some context for the specific versions that he's going to reference. He said in 1974, at the present time, only two translations are recommendable, the King James Version and the New American Standard Bible. The King James Version is unsurpassed in the beauty of its language, even if it may sound somewhat archaic to modern ears. The New American Standard Bible is unsurpassed in its accuracy and its fidelity to the Greek texts. Its language is also very readable. And so that's an interesting thing to note there because the Greek texts behind the New American Standard and the King James are slightly different. We've talked about this in the past, but just showing to acknowledge that, that R.V. Clearwaters appreciates the different strengths of both of those versions. So I want to show you some examples of how multiple translations can aid our understanding of the biblical text. So here in Romans 9.29, there's a, there's a phrase, Lord Sabaoth, which you know from the song, right? Um, Lord Sabaoth, his name, in a mighty fortress is our God. Here in Romans 9.29, the King James is quoting Esaias, which uh, is Isaiah. It's the Greek word for Isaiah. And it references the Lord Sabaoth. In the English Standard Version, that is rendered Lord of hosts. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't find that one particularly revealing to me, even referring to the Lord of hosts. Sabaoth, I didn't explain this. Sabaoth is, um, is just a transliteration. That's not a translation. That's a transliteration of the Hebrew word. So that, if you looked at the word in Hebrew, that's how you say that word, Sabaoth. The English Standard Version says hosts, which kind of makes me think of a multitude, but it's still not very specific. In the New International Version, it says the Lord Almighty, which, you know, that helps me gain some understanding of, of maybe the meaning behind this phrase talking about the Lord's strength. I'm encouraged by understanding it's the Lord Almighty. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, um, says this, though. It says the Lord of armies. 
And I think that, that is actually, if you looked up in a lexicon, the definition of Sabaoth, the Hebrew word, that's what it means. Uh, Sabaoth means armies. And so I actually find the CSB the most helpful, uh, the most literal in helping me understand what that word actually means. It's the Lord of armies. That actually makes sense of why the Lord is almighty, because he's the commander of the armies. And it helps me understand who the hosts are. It is a multitude of armies, of soldiers. Um, so that's one instance of how multiple translations can help us understand what the words or what the meaning of the text is. Here's another example from Genesis 48:15. In Genesis 48:15, the King James and the New King James say, God, which fed me all my life long and to this day. Um, this is Jacob talking. This is Jacob blessing Joseph's sons. Um, and so he's asking the Lord to, to bless Joseph's sons. And he's saying, God, which fed me all my life long unto this day, bless them. The ESV, the NIV, and the NASB, they all say some version of this, God who has been my shepherd all my life long. And both of these translations, fed and shepherd, not, neither one's exactly wrong. The word is the word for shepherd. And of course, shepherds care for their sheep by feeding them. Uh, so those ideas and words are connected. But I think that shepherd helps us understand the significance of what Jacob is saying for a few reasons. One is that Jacob, of course, he was a shepherd. He knew what it meant to care for sheep. And you remember in his story, he's a skillful shepherd. He took good care of his sheep. And so by referencing the Lord in this way, he's talking about the Lord's skill to care for him and how he wants the Lord to care for his children. This also, by looking at it in other translations, we can realize this is the first time in the whole Bible that God is called a shepherd. So David picks up on this, of course, in Psalm 23, calling the Lord his shepherd. It's the same word. It's the same idea. Uh, and this is the first time that we have that reference. And so we're helped to look at different translations in this. I'll go kind of quickly here, but here in John 19, just as a last example, when Jesus is on the cross, um, there's a word play here in John 19 um, that's, that's not necessarily obvious to us in English. Um, in the King James, it, talks, it, it translates the same exact Greek word, uh, telos. Maybe you've heard the phrase tetelestai, it is finished. There's that same word in Greek is used for accomplished and fulfilled and finished in the King James and the New King James. So those three different English words translate the same Greek word. The ESV gets a little bit closer, but it's still not consistently translating that word. So you have finished and then fulfilled and then finished. And those, all of these are perfectly acceptable ways of translating the word. None of these are wrong. They're all right. I'm just showing that we, we, in English, we can't see those connections. A new Bible that just came out this year, the Legacy Standard Bible produced by John MacArthur and the Master's Seminary, they've made a point of being consistent with all these Greek words, bringing them into English so that you see that connection. So in the Legacy Standard Bible, they say finish, finish, finish. So you can see how these ideas are connected in Greek and the point that John is making by how they bring that over into English. I'll show you all this just to show the, the principle of how comparing different translations can help us understand what's going on uh, or even that something is going on uh, and help us gain insights and understanding into the text. Here, I shall pause. Uh, I've been talking for a little while. Um, so I'll pause here for any questions or comments you might have. Yes.
because that is, of course, the armies, isn't it? What's that? We'll keep going. So here in this, this third section, this third point, here's where we're going to especially give attention to applying, uh, applying how we just think about using translations to our church and specifically to where we are in considering the, the translation that we use for our public services, gatherings, preaching, and teaching. And here, there's different ways of expressing this, the principle that, that I want to communicate here. I think in the handout, uh, I've described it something like this, that that when we use a translation, we need to know what we're using. Um, so what I mean by that is that it can be helpful to know the translation approach and method used by the translators to become familiar with the strengths and weaknesses of any given translation. So for instance, again, just to connect back to some other things, if you're using the message, you know, I think it's important to realize that it's a paraphrase and not treat it like a translation. Um, to treat it more like a commentary by Eugene Peterson and to read it with that in mind. Um, using the NASB, realizing that it, it can be good for study. It can be a little bit harder, though, to understand some of the meaning. So you might have your work cut out for you in that, and that's a good thing. That's fine. If you're using the New International Version, you know, I think it's important to realize that sometimes that commitment to convey meaning results in some passages doing more interpretation for you, putting a little bit of distance between you and the text, that, that may obscure other possible interpretations. That can happen in some places. But there's also use in reading that way because it gives you some, of the, some more of the meaning. If you're wanting to, to learn, well, well, what are the principles involved in this translation I hold in my hands, one of the, one of the best ways to do that is to read the preface. If you, if you have a version, usually there's a preface of greater or lesser length, uh, depending on the, the edition and how it's packaged. Um, I would encourage you to read the preface if, if you want to know more. If you care to know, you can usually find out who the translators are. Uh, you can usually look those up online or get them from the publisher. Um, this morning, as I mentioned, I want to spend most of our time talk, thinking about how we're using the King James, especially the challenges of knowing how to use this translation as a church in our preaching, in our public reading, when we, when we read the text without explaining it in our children's classes, in our evangelistic outreaches, like Vacation Bible School. And we need to also appreciate, too, that, that there are many strengths today, using today the, the King James Version. In the main, it, is a for, it follows formal translation principles. There are some times when it doesn't. We've talked about those in the past. Totally understandable. Um, but it's, it's generally a more formal translation, which makes it helpful for study and getting close to the Hebrew and Greek words. Portions of the King James continue to be just poignantly beautiful, even to, to modern ears. Passages like Psalm 23 in the Lord's Prayer. Using the King James also connects us to our heritage as English-speaking Christians, uh, going generations back, going hundreds of years back, even. But in using the King James for public reading and teaching, we need to, we need to take seriously the challenges that we face in reading it. And before enumerating those challenges, I want to clarify that you may not feel these challenges apply to you specifically. You may, not, you, may, you may feel that you have little or no trouble reading or understanding the King James, and that's great. That is only a good thing. I would not try to convince you otherwise. 
in this class and in the motion presented by the elders, we're not trying to convince any individuals who treasure or are helped by the King James to change that. But in applying this lesson to our consideration as a church about the Bible we use for public reading, teaching, we are not only thinking of ourselves as individuals, we're thinking of the church as a whole, from the oldest to the youngest, from the most mature to the least mature, from the members to the guests, from the believers to the unconverted, from those whose first language is English to those who speak English only as a second language. And it's with this diverse group in mind that we as a church must consider the challenges of using a Bible translated for British Christians 400 years ago. And in short, the challenge is this, that the King James Bible is English, but it is not our English. The King James Bible is, of course, English, but it is not our English. Now, there are, of course, different kinds of the same language, right? The same language can change across place. We Americans speak a different kind of English than they speak in Britain or Australia or South Africa. If you travel to those places, you might need to be informed about some certain words or terms. The same language changes also across time. Cool meant something different for my generation than it did for my grandparents. And I've been informed that fire means something different for our teens than it did for me when I was a teen. I think it means cool. The kind of English used in the King James was a different, from a different time and place. And it's often referred to as Elizabethan English. Mark Ward, we've recommended his book multiple times. Mark Ward says, the King James and modern translations are saying the same thing, of course, but they're speaking to different audiences, and only one of those audiences is still living. Since 1611, much about the King James has been modified to accommodate us as modern Americans. The King James has already changed. If you have a King James in your lap or in the pew in front of you, you're almost certainly not holding what was produced in 1611. The font is different, the letter formations are different, the spelling is very different, and over the course of several, of several revisions, hundreds of changes had been made from the Bible printed in 1611 to the King James Bible that I hold in my hand. For instance, on the screen, uh, you have a passage of scripture that when you look, I mean, this is the 1611 King James Bible. This is one of them. This is a digitized version of it. Um, and you can tell just by looking at it, the distance between us, right? This was not, this, this would not have made readers in 1611 look twice. Um, for us, this is harder. You know, there's words in there uh, that are spelled quite differently. There's letters like the S, I'll just give you a clue. <laughs> the S doesn't look like the S that we use. Um, and so this is, this is more challenging. And I, I, I show that just to point out that there's a difference between what we hold and what was produced in 1611. In one sense, these changes are not significant because by and large, the words are the same. But in another sense, these changes are very significant because to my knowledge, none of us read out of a Bible like this and we don't want to. Even when the font and spelling are more modern, there are still differences between our editions of the King James Bible. I've realized that my King James, just in the course of our public services, when Pastor John was preaching in Isaiah 52 and 53, I realized that our, our King Jameses, I think that's the right way to say that, they're, they're different from one another. In Isaiah 52, 14, my King James says astonished, but his King James says astonied, which is a form of that word that we don't use anymore. And changes like that are made to accommodate you and me. 
and that's very kind and thoughtful of whoever did that. Uh, changes have already been made in the King James to accommodate us. C.S. Lewis, to quote him again, he says, this is in a, a preface or a foreword that he wrote to a, a new Bible translation, probably in the mid-1900s. He said, the truth is that if we are to have a translation at all, we must have periodical retranslation. There is no such thing as translating a book into another language once and for all, for a language is a changing thing. If your son is to have clothes, it is no good buying him a suit once and for all. He will grow out of it and have to be reclothed. For many people, this language difference, and again, just I'm trying to choose my words as carefully as I can. For many people, this language difference is significant and presents real challenges to understanding God's word. And it may not seem that way to you, and that's fine. It may present no challenges to you. That's great. But I would, I would ask you, we would ask you, to realize how significant and challenging it can be for others. Of course, the King James is not completely unintelligible in English. Not at all. I think a lot of people can understand a lot of it. Unbelievers can, and, can be and are saved by reading it. Christians can be and are edified by studying it. But... The King James presents significant and unnecessary challenges for many modern American English speakers. And that's the concern that we're thinking about as elders and as a church. And this challenge is not anyone's fault. The King James translators are not to be faulted. They are not to be mocked. They are not to be scorned or looked down on. They did a great job. They did a great job translating the Bible into common, the common English of their time and place. And they set the trajectory for generations of Bible translations to come and for us. They just couldn't anticipate the changes that would take place over 400 years and across the ocean in America. And modern readers should not be faulted for not being educated in Elizabethan English. Now, to help us understand the significant challenges that some feel, I want to first listen to some notable voices on this point. In other words, you don't have to take my word for it. It has long been recognized by many Americans who are experts in the English language that Elizabethan English in the King James presents challenges to modern Bible readers. In the 1700s, this must have been about 1780 because of the number he uses, but Benjamin Franklin known for his skill with the English language, not to be trusted with his theology, though. Um, he said this. He said, It is now more than 170 years since the translation of our common English Bible. He's talking about the King James. The language in that time is much changed, and the style being obsolete and thence less agreeable is perhaps one reason why the reading of that excellent book is of late much neglected. That was in about 1780. In the early 1800s, Noah Webster, also uh, skilled with the English language, producing the American Dictionary that uh, you know of, he said in the lapse of two or three centuries, he's talking about the King James, he says in the lapse of two or three centuries, changes have taken place which, in particular passages, impair the beauty, in others, obscure the sense of the original languages. Some words have fallen into disuse, and the signification of others in current popular use is not the same now as it was when they were introduced into the version. And then he says that words in the present version fail to do this is certain, fail to communicate the first ideas of the original languages. I have a book. Um, I'll go back here for a second. 
I have um, this book here uh, called The Defined King James Bible. This was produced by pastors who are um, committed to the superiority of the King James um, over uh, other translations. They, they don't recommend other translations at all. Um, due to copyright laws, I'm not permitted to show pictures of the Bible on the screen, but you're welcome to come see it if you want to see what this looks like. And what it does is they have hundreds of notes in here where they will bold letters that are hard to understand and that aren't used anymore, and they'll have a definition at the bottom of the page. The bio for the authors uh, of, this, of this edition of the Bible by Doug Waite Jr. and Sr., it's a father and son, says that Doug Waite Jr., seeing, <clears throat> excuse me, seeing the need for the defined King James Bible, he accepted the challenge to complete this task. He has devoted hundreds of hours of research and computer time to put these definitions into the footnotes and to make this dream a reality. The bio for Doug Waite Sr. says, For many years, Dr. Waite has seen the need to have uncommon words used by the King James Bible translators in 1611 defined properly and completely. In the introduction, here's where I think I'll show the slide. In the introduction, Doug Waite Sr., he's, he's talking about the need for this, this uh, defined King James Bible. He says, Nehemiah 8.8 8 states, So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. This is what the defined King James Bible has done. It will cause those who read the King James Bible to know the sense and to understand the reading. Acts 8.30 states that Philip, when he met the Ethiopian eunuch, ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Esaias, and said, understand thou what thou readest. The eunuch's reply in the next verse was, how can I accept some man should guide me? The footnotes in the King, defined King James Bible will act as a guide so that you too might understand what thou readest, close quote. And I gave a hearty amen to these biblical principles of understanding God's word. And this, this pastor, Doug Way, believes that there is a need for a guide so that the reader can understand the King James Bible. In the preface uh, written by his son, Doug Waite Jr., he writes, as, the, as its title suggests, the defined King James Bible attempts to define archaic, obsolete, or uncommon English words that occur in the text of the King James Bible. My main purpose in these footnotes was not to criticize the translators or the translation, rightly so. It was instead to communicate as clearly as possible the meaning intended by the English words the translators chose to use. This was not always easy to do. And then the next part's not on the screen. Oh, yep, here we go. In almost every case, he continues, the King James Bible translators selected the best or one of the best English words possible at that time to convey the meaning of the Hebrew or Greek that they were translating. It is my hope and prayer that the Lord will use my feeble efforts to make a good version better, as the King James Bible translators wrote. In attempting to do so, however, mistakes may have inadvertently crept in. So here, just another installation uh, showing the need and describing that need and the effort that was taken to meet that need. I won't go into this in much detail, but the Trinitarian Bible Society, which produces King James Bibles and the Texas Receptus, uh, the version in popular print, they produce this um, Bible word list. Uh, it's a 14-page document of unfamiliar words in the King James Bible, and, and they point out that this doesn't include all of them, but they recommend that the reader use a good English dictionary 
to aid in understanding words which this list does not define. Actually, they, they produce pamphlets of this that I've ordered. If you'd like copies of, of their word list, um, Lord willing, I'll have them for you next week. In sum, then, just taking a step back of what we're talking about, Benjamin Franklin, Noah Webster, masters of the English language, and pastors who are committed to the King James Bible all realize that there's a challenge and a need to address the older form of the English language in the King James Bible. And before we look at examples, because I want to show examples of specifics of what we're talking about, I want to address one more thought, namely that there will always be things in Scripture that are hard to understand, and that's true. There are things that are hard to understand because of the subject matter of the Bible as it addresses spiritual realities, right? So there are words like sanctification or propitiation, and there's just those words, it'll take some effort to understand them, and there's no better words to describe that because they're talking about spiritual truths. It's the subject matter that's challenging. And there will be other challenges in reading the Bible because the Bible was written on the other side of the world two to 3,000 years ago, and it references old things in old ways, like behemoths. But these are not the kinds of challenges that Benjamin Franklin and Noah Webster and Doug Waite, Jr. and Sr. are talking about. Mark Ward, again, in his book, he says, Although the subject matter of the Bible may continually sound foreign to modern ears, the language, as much as possible, should not. So in other words, to just kind of illustrate it like a road, the road of understanding the Bible is still going to have some really tight turns. That road can sometimes be difficult. There can be really tight turns on that road because there's challenging concepts in the Bible. But the road should be paved and smooth with common language, with a common understandable uh, language in the language that the people speak. So I, I want us now to consider some specific examples of this challenge. Um, this is a, a picture of, the, um, of a half a page from the Trinitarian Bible Society just defining some of the words. Um, and I don't know how readable that is for you. I hope it is. These are just some examples. We're not going to talk about all these, there's, but there's 14 pages of that. The first category of words that I want to look at are what are unused words. And this is what Noah Webster referred to when he said that some words have fallen into disuse. Um, we know these kinds of words when we see them or when we hear them. These are the words, the unused words, are the words that either make us pull out a dictionary or they're words that we might just be comfortable not knowing precisely what they mean and we might read on. Sometimes uh, folks like the, in the Trinitarian Bible Society in their literature, they'll talk about the challenge of uncommon words. But to be clear, this category here of unused words, these are not just uncommon words. These are words that are completely out of use in the English language. There's a difference between uncommon and not used, or, yeah, completely unused. There's a difference, right? So the first car I ever had was a Reliant K, 1988 Reliant K. Those are uncommon. I think I saw one this last year. Uh, 1988 Reliant Ks are uncommon. Model Ts are not in use. You don't, I've never seen one puttering down the road. Uh, so there's a difference, I'm just trying to illustrate, there's a difference between uncommon and not used. And these are some of the examples. Um, I'm not going to read through them all, but um, Proverbs 27.2 talks about braying, Luke 17, trowel, um, 1 Samuel 5.12, emeralds. I've included, I don't know if you can see, but my spell check thinks I'm wrong. Uh, that's just a, a snippet of my notes. Um, more unused words. Uh, I think this word in Deuteronomy 11, I think you say it champagne, 
uh, but I don't think it's champagne the way we think of it. Maybe it's a different word, though. I'm not sure. Psalm 4.2 talks about leasing. That's not the uh, apartment rent kind of leasing. Um, it's talking about something else. Isaiah 14 uh, uses a couple words that I'm, uh, yeah, that are not in use anymore. Um, there are other kinds of words that are changed words. So there are plenty of words that are not in use anymore. There are other words that have changed. They're still in use, but they're different today. These are words that Noah Webster said the signification in current popular use is not the same now as it was when they were introduced into the version. Mark Ward calls these false friends. He says the biggest problem in understanding the King James comes from false friends, words that are still in common use but have changed meaning in ways that modern readers are highly unlikely to recognize. He says each one of them will mislead you through no fault of your own unless ignorance of an English no one speaks anymore is a fault, and he says, I don't think it is. And before we dive in to these specific examples, you may think, you may see an example and think, ah, I knew what that meant, and that's good, that's fine. But remember, others may not be as familiar with the King James as you are. They may have not gone through the discovery process that you went through to learn what that word means. So we want to think of the children. We want to, we want to think of others as we go through these examples. So these are some changed words. In Numbers 23, it says, God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. This does not reference a mythical creature, but a wild ox. And we actually know, like, for, for us, it's even hard to understand, like, why would they choose that word? It makes perfect sense. I'm not going to explain all the details, but basically they're transliterating an English word, unicorn, from Latin, from Greek, which... When they did the Septuagint, they didn't know what the Hebrew word meant exactly. Uh, so they used the word for a one-horned animal, which is where this word unicorn comes from. So it might seem strange to us, but it, it made sense, and it makes sense when you think about what the King James translators are doing. They didn't do this wrong. That is, that is not the impression that I want to give you. I'm just trying to show that there's a distance between why they would have chosen that word and how it sounds to us. In Philippians 1, they talk about conversation. It doesn't refer to how we talk. Uh, it refers to our lifestyle. In Amos 3, it says, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? When we hear the word evil, we think, we think of moral wickedness. Um, but here, in this context, it refers to calamity or disaster. In Psalm 47, 2, they say that for the Lord most high is terrible. Uh, that doesn't mean really bad, but to be feared. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, they say apt to teach. We use the word apt to talk about inclinations, but it doesn't mean inclined to, it means able to teach. In Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say to Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee. What, what they mean by that, they don't mean that they're not paying attention or that they're being careless. They mean they're not worried or they're not anxious. In Colossians 2.8, um, Paul says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit. That doesn't mean ruin you or to go rotten. That means to rob or to plunder. In 1 Corinthians 11, and in some other places, when the King James talks about heresies, it's not talking about doctrinal deviation, which is usually how we use that word. Um, they're talking about divisions. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all these. There's more. Uh, there's some more right there. There's some more right there. And then there's awkward words, too. Words that are just hard for us to read as modern English speakers. And yeah, just really honestly, I mean, we taking an honest look at this, there are words that when we read them for us, they're awkward or they're difficult. 
It's hard, not just for personal reading, but in public reading of Scripture. These are words that, again, they're only awkward for us. They're only awkward for us modern Americans. These were just the right words for the King James translators to use in 1611. They were not wrong. They were not being crass, except for the word pisseth. That word was also vulgar back then. But the Hebrew word is not polite either. And so they're carrying that tension over into their own English. So we go through all of this to try to, um, to, try to just illustrate uh, for you the, the challenges that Franklin and Noah Webster and that these others are talking about and that some have when they read uh, the King James. I'll have a concluding application here in a moment. Um, I'll pause because I've been talking for quite a while for any comments or questions and then I'll just give kind of some con concluding application thoughts um, for our church and where we're at. Any comments or questions? Yes, Ginger. Yeah, so there's a couple things you mentioned there. Um, they did have they did have Greek text. They were using a couple of revisions of Erasmus's text. They didn't have the the thousands of manuscripts that we know of today. Um, they, the King James is 80% uh, the Bishop's Bible. It is, they, and their first principle of translation was they were going to take the Bishop's Bible and revise it as little as possible. So it's mostly the Bishop's Bible. And again, we talked about this weeks ago, but the, in the Bishop's Bible, you know, is mostly the Great Bible, and the Great Bible is mostly Tyndale. Like, if you work your way back, the King James is, is a lot Tyndale. Um, and they're just revising the English that came before them, yeah. yeah. yeah that's right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That is accurate. Mm -hmm. But kind of, a, kind of a whole other conversation. But yes, that is accurate, to my knowledge. Some concluding thoughts. So these are concluding thoughts for just way, a way of thinking through what we've considered and um, over the whole class and for considering our Bible translation for use in our public services. Point number one, the Bible is the inspired word of God, the source of spiritual life, our ultimate authority for what to believe and how to live. This is the very beginning of the class. We affirm this in our statement of faith. So that is point number one. Point number two is, therefore, God's word ought to be available to every person in their own language. This is what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years, bringing the Bible into the language that the people speak because we want access to the source of life. If we are to listen to God and to submit to his authority, we need to have access to his word. Um, point number three is that the King James Bible is not our English. And point number four is, therefore, we want to change the Bible that we use for public services and activities to change to a version that is in our own English. And again, I hope you can see this application is about what we use as a church for public reading, preaching, and teaching, not about what you use personally. Mark Ward, in his book, he says, the one thing that outweighs all the values of retaining the King James as a common standard is whether people today can be expected to understand its English. 
Some people might say, yes, people should be expected to understand Elizabethan English. In which case, I would respectfully disagree. I don't think we should expect our children or an unchurched guest or a refugee from the Congo to understand Elizabethan English. Whatever is necessary to understand Elizabethan English should not be a prerequisite to understanding God's word. I will say that again. Whatever is necessary to understand Elizabethan English should not be a prerequisite to understanding God's word. Some might say, no, we wouldn't expect people to understand Elizabethan English, but it's easy enough to look it up, in which case I would respectfully disagree. I think Pastor Doug Waite, who quoted earlier, was right when he said that looking up the definitions of Elizabethan English is not always easy. And I don't think that our Sunday school teachers should be required, as Doug Waite did, to spend hundreds of hours looking up definitions. I don't think that we should need to have the multi-volume Oxford English Dictionary available in the bookstall so that we can know how people use the word convenient in the 1600s. And quite frankly, I don't overestimate my own ability to know which words have changed and how they've changed. We believe that, no, people should not be expected to understand Elizabethan English. Therefore, we need a modern version. We believe as much as possible that in our public reading, preaching, and teaching, we should use an English translation that communicates as precisely as possible the word of God to us. Now, I'll conclude this class, uh, and I'll, I'll let you know, too, so where we're going from here. So we have one more week of this class. The last week of the class is Q&A. It's just questions and answers. I have some random notes that I haven't gotten to, and I'll have some of those notes to talk about some things. But if you have questions that you think it would be helpful for us to address in the class, please let me know. The, the earlier that you ask me, the more time I'll have to give a helpful answer. You're also welcome to ask on the spot in class next week. How exciting is that? Um, so that's where we're going next week. Um, so I would encourage you to be thinking. If there's something that's been, that you've been thinking about that you want addressed, uh, let me know. I'll conclude with this thought, and then we'll be dismissed. This is from the preface of the King James Bible. Many other things we might give thee warning of, gentle reader, if we had not exceeded the measure of a preface already. Their preface is quite long, like this class. It remaineth that we commend thee to God and to the spirit of his grace, which is able to build further than we can ask or think. He removeth the scales from our eyes, the veil from our hearts, opening our wits that we may understand his word, enlarging our hearts, yea, correcting our affections, that we may love it above gold and silver, yea, that we may love it to the end. Amen. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to love your word because we love you. We thank you for the love you've shown us in giving us your word and the message that your word communicates to us of your love through Christ. We pray that we would know your love better as we consider your word from Romans 8 and the spirit of adoption that you've given us in Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.